Genesis 17 this morning. As we begin Genesis 17, we left off Abram being 86 years old and having a son with a handmaiden named Hagar that he picked up while they were in Egypt. She says handmaiden, handmaiden, but basically in that society you had slaves and different things. And uh, so she worked for them. And Ishmael was born. And then we start chapter 17. It says, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me faithfully and be blameless. So we have this 13-year gap between chapter 16 and chapter 17. 13 years, it seems, that, it, that uh, since Abram has tried to help God, <laughs> help God, you know, with his promise, both him and Sarah. I wonder what Abram was thinking over those 13 years. I wonder if he thought, well, did God forfeit his promise with me? Maybe God has forsaken me. But God appears before him and says, I am God Almighty, walk before me faithfully and be blameless. This is the first time, but not the last time, that the Lord will call himself the Almighty, the El Shaddai. And I don't know if any of you remember the 80s song by Amy Grant, El Shaddai. A couple of people, wow. I mean, it was a great song. Okay, well, yeah, like every song that was really good, we've overplayed it over the years, but it's a great song if you want to go listen to it. But El means God, and Shaddai, you know, we're, we're not really quite sure the exact meaning on that. But some scholars think it means to be strong, the Almighty, the, the, you know, the, the, the biggest one in the room in a sense. But in, but in context, Almighty means the one who can do anything he wants. By God calling himself that, God is reminding us of who he is. And we need that reminder every now and then. And our relationship with the Almighty, because sometimes we need to be reminded of who he is and who we are. Sometimes I have to remind my son the other day, I, you know, my son is, he can be really sensitive. And if I just say, hey, Brandon, you need to go pick up the stuff in the hall that you left there. He'll be like, you know, getting all like sad about it. And I'm like, Dude, you, I, the other day I finally go, look, I'm the parent. I give instructions. I don't beat you. I don't hit you. I don't take out my belt and whip your bottom. I don't do all that. I give you instructions, and you're supposed to follow those. You don't get upset every time I do that. This is like God coming to us and saying, hey, Alan, remember who I am? I'm the Almighty. I'm the Father here. I'm the one in charge here. I am the Almighty. This is where our relationship really begins with him, and it leads our walk with God. I am the Almighty. Walk before me faithfully and blameless. The word blameless in the Hebrew is not, you know, it doesn't mean just blameless, like you have no blame. God, God would not walk with us, uh, and, walk and we could not walk before him with sin in our lives. We have to be purified. And the reason why we were purified is because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross. That purifies us. But if it was left up to us, we couldn't do it. The word means whole or complete or single-hearted. God is saying, when you walk with me, I expect total commitment which includes unwavering faith in my promise that I have already made for you. I don't need you to help me with your promise. 
Don't produce any more Ishmaels in your life. Walk with me and trust and obey and surrender. This is what God is saying to him. And this is a challenge that we all have with the Almighty. God is saying to you today, you belong to me now. If you profess your faith in me, you belong to me. And you need to walk before me blameless. You need to be blameless at work or at home. You need to be blameless in private you need to be blameless on the computer. You need to be blameless when we're out you know, with our friends and having fun and enjoying life. We are to walk with him. God sees and knows everything. We often forget about that. The other day, um, I knew Brandon was coming up behind me, and he didn't know I knew that, okay? I could see his reflection off of something. And I go, you know I have eyes in the back of my head, don't you? Okay, we as parents pretend like that. You know, we, we understand when our kids are up to something most of the time until they get too conniving, you know. But still, but God's not like that. God actually does know. He's not faking it. He knows what we do. He sees and knows everything. God says we need to be like, be like him now. We're not, we're not supposed to be like the world with my children, when they get to a certain age, I'll be taking them out, and, 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 and I, will, I will teach them, and I will talk to them about how they represent both my wife and I in their actions and their attitudes. Now, we can't blame everything on the parents, but it does, it does have, you know, a little bit of reflection on us, doesn't it? Every parent say yes, because that's, <laughs> that's reality. Our reputations are on the line with our children, for the most part. How they act ultimately reflects upon us. This is true with the Almighty. We bear his name. We have his name stamped on us. It, you know, in all that we do, in all that we say, it reflects on him. This is why I keep harping on, like, like social media, Facebook. You know, it's the basics of the ba basics, Twitter and other things. The things that, you know, we feel so anonymous on the computer. But the things we hit like on... That reflects on us. That reflects on what we say we believe. And if you got up there, I'm a Christian, I'm this, I'm that, or, you know, people know you go to church, you, you better think twice before you hit that like button or that share button. You know, well, I didn't have that language myself. I just shared it. <laughs> it reflects on who we are. It reflects on who we say, you know, we follow. Walk before me faithful and be blameless, God says. I am the God Almighty. Walk before me faithfully and be blameless. Then I will make my covenant between me and you and will, uh, between me and you and will greatly increase your numbers. So God is confirming his covenant that he's made with Abraham. You know, we've talked about this over and over. God made the covenant with Abraham in chapter 12. He reaffirmed it in chapter 15 with a ceremony where, the, you know, they cut the animals, but God was the only one to walk through. Uh, so it was an unconditional covenant on God's part, knowing that man could not, you know, attain that and be like that. So God's reminding him of the covenant, and he's basically saying, I haven't forgotten you, Abraham. I made a promise here. So now God adds on a sign for this covenant called circumcision. 24 times God will say, will, will say here, I will. 
If you read the whole thing, you go through, God goes, I will. I will. I will. And he never asked Abram to do anything except to walk before him blameless, single-hearted, knowing what he, knowing what he believes, okay? Not, not sinless, but blameless. Like, I, I, I know my path. I know the direction I should be going on. That's the direction I'm going. Now, what is Abraham's reaction of, of being in, in, you know, God's presence here? He fell face down. It's interesting. I've heard people say that, uh, you know, they've been in the presence of God or an angel, yet not once have they ever told me they fell face down in front of them or they were scared of the angel. So it makes me wonder, were they really in God's presence? Did they really see an angel? Because every time I read in the scriptures, it, you know, the angels say what? Don't be afraid. The same thing here. Abram knows who God is, and he lays down in front of him here. And, you know, and it says, Abram fell for, face down in verse 3. And God said to him, as for me, this is my covenant with you. You will, be my you will be a father or be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abram. Your name will be Abraham, for I have made you a father of many nations. Whew. Now I can stop trying to say Abram when I really want to say Abraham all the time, you know? Abram means exalted father, and Abraham means father of a multitude. For 83 years, calling him exalted father, when he met strangers, you know, strangers would come up to him, oh, your name's Abram, well, how many kids do you have? None. Maybe someday. And, you know, keep saying that someday and keep saying that someday and keep saying that someday. But now he's 99 stinking years old. Changes it to father of a multitude. So he has to, you know, go back to his wife and has to go back to all the servants. And, you know, okay, guys, you can't call me Abram anymore. God has changed my name and everyone has to call me father of a multitude. And I'm sure there are some people cracking up and laughing about this. You know what I'm saying? Because you know how we are. But he still only has one child at this point, Ishmael. How many times was he called father of a multitude? Hey there, father of a multitude. How's it going there today, father of a multitude? 50, 100 times a day? You know, how many times does somebody say your name a day, especially if you're in charge of a whole bunch of people? 24 years have passed since the promise. At this point, they couldn't even, ha you know, biologically have children unless it was a miracle. And that's the whole point. What is interesting, there's a, there's a name change for both of them. He will change Sarai to Sarah. And both with Sarah and Abraham, God changes the pronunciation of their name. And he inserts the fifth letter of the alphabet, the Hebrew alphabet here. And he puts the breath sound of ah in there. Abraham, Sarah. Okay, he puts that, that sound in there. And it's important because it's the same sound as used for the word spirit, ruach. That's the word, Hebrew word for spirit is ruach. That ah, it's the breath of God. God has waited until their bodies physically were dead, biologically speaking. They couldn't have children. And then he's going to breathe life into them through the work of the Holy Spirit. It's interesting. We have to be filled with the Holy Spirit for us to accomplish what God wants. You know, oftentimes we're, we're kind of like Sarai and Abram trying to help God along with what he wants to accomplish. And God's going, no, no, no. I need you to die to all of that. 
before I can really accomplish what I want to accomplish. Because we try and we try and we try, but we must die to self. Abram and Sarai were elderly. The vitality of their youth was used up, and and God is saying, this is what I've been waiting for. And they're like, what? You've been waiting on this? And he breathes into them the name of the Holy Spirit symbolically. The flesh is dead. Now the work of God can start. Isaac's birth was a miracle. It was a total miracle. He would go on to be in the lineage of Jesus Christ. God didn't want anybody to say that this is the work of Abram. God didn't want anybody to say, well, Abraham was such a great man, that, that you know, such an exalted man, that, that of course the Messiah came from him. No, they're going, this 99-year-old had a kid. And that's in the lineage of God. Only God could, could accomplish that. He didn't want anybody to say, this is something I have done for God. Like Nebuchadnezzar, you know, was walking around the, the wall of a city one day, and, and it said, this Babylon that I built is, is great, and God literally struck him down with madness. God wouldn't, God's saying, you're not taking the glory of mine. He goes on and says in, in verse 6, I will make you very fruitful. I will, make you, I will make nations of you, and kings will come from you. This would be kind of hard for a 99-year-old to, to understand here, but we understand this from Isaac, the kings being born here. And, 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 you know, but we miss it's, that it's also happening through the other side of the family too, Ishmael. Did you know that Arab kings came from Ishmael and all that kind of stuff? So it came, you know, God made his name great over the whole world. Verse 7, it goes on and says, I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for all the generations to come to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. And we've already seen this. We've already talked about this, that the covenant is an everlasting covenant, that it can't be forfeited. The same covenant was, was made between Jesus and us on the cross. We didn't do anything for Jesus on the cross. He did everything for us. Both covenants were made of blood. Both covenants we enter, were entered to by one party. Both are, are by faith, and both are, are eternal. There is no chance that the Jews will be replaced in this covenant. Israel is still in this covenant. And just as, as Jesus doesn't replace us if we fell in our side of the relationship with him. This is so important because we are going to fail. I would say, how many of you have failed like big time? Not just like, oh, I lied, and raise your hands. But I don't want you to because I don't want people going, oh, I wonder what they did. But, you know, some of us, you know, we all have sin, but some of us have, have like drug God through the dirt and have come back to God. And what a glorious day it is when we come back to God. Romans 11:1 1 says, I asked then, did God reject his people? By no means. I'm an Israelite myself, uh, Paul is saying, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. God did not reject his people, who he foreknew, for God's gift, it goes on in verse 29, for God's gifts and his call are irrevocable. The reason is because he made an irrevocable covenant. Just as the new covenant with Christ is with us. In John 6, 27, it says, All those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. 
For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will, uh, this is the will of him who sent me, that, that I shall lose none of all those he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks up, uh, looks to the Son, believes in him, shall have eternal life. I will raise them up on, uh, at the last day. It seems pretty simple to me. And this is something that we, every one of us need to get a hold of. You should not doubt your salvation. Don't wonder about it. Don't doubt it. Christ isn't ever going to drive you away. We belong to the body of Christ, and the whole body will be resurrected, and we will be with him forever. And that is the greatest thing that we could, I mean, that's the hope that we hold on to. That's what keeps us going during dark times. That's what keeps us going when life seems to be falling around us. In John 10, it says, my sheep listen to my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I will give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. And I and the Father are one. This is so clear. God gives us life forever. It's called eternal life. Eternal life is interesting. It's unending. (laughs) I thought it was funny, but it's unending. There you go. God has us in his hand, and no one can take us. Eternal security. This is the best security system you can have. The new covenant with Christ is eternal. And, the, you know, once you believe, once you've made a genuine decision, you are saved, and you can never be replaced. I'm not talking about somebody who comes in and flies in by the seat of the pants and, oh, yeah, I accept Christ, and they never go. Okay, that's between them and God. God and them are going to have to figure that out whether they're, they're saved or not. I, I don't determine who's saved. God does. But if you're, if you're here and you're saying, I profess Jesus Christ, he died for my sins, I acknowledge he is God, and I accept that, that he is in charge of my life, then don't doubt your salvation. You can never be replaced. Now back to the Abrahamic covenant. Verse 8, it says, the whole land of Canaan, where you now reside as a foreigner, I will give as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you, and I will be their God. God promised the land to Abraham and his descendants. God calls it an everlasting covenant. He calls it that 11 times. What's interesting is the whole, and we've talked about this before, the replacement theology idea. Uh, You know, what's interesting about it is the fact that the prophets foretold Israel that the Messiah would be coming and that they would reject the Messiah. But not once did the prophecies Uh, You know, never once did they suggest that God would replace Israel in the covenant. Romans 10, Paul understood this. And he understood the Jews. And he understood the Messiah. And and Paul talks to them about how God and and the Jews, uh, you know, God knew the Jews were a rebellious people. So he knew how it would turn out. And yet he made an everlasting covenant with them. God promised that in the last day he would restore, restore them, the Jews. We know that they took partial possession of the, the land. We talked about that, how God had promised like 300,000 um, mi- uh, uh, miles. I don't know. Uh, three, yeah, 300,000 square miles, thank you, um, of, of land. And they really only ever took possession of 
30,000, 10% of it. But, you know, Joshua brought them into the land after 40 years in the wilderness. You would think that if God was going to reject them, that would have been a perfect time, right? 40 stinking years in the wilderness, and God's sitting there putting up with them, and they're murmuring, and they're, I don't like this manna, no, 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 you know, I want to go back to Egypt, and hello, (laughs) you know. You would think God would just, okay, fine, let me find a new people. But he doesn't do that. They go into the land, and they conquer some of it, and God knew what was coming. And I love the fact that before they went into the land, God said, do you want to be my people? And they're like, well, of course we do, you know. And God's response was a funny response. He goes, how I wish it was in your heart for you to do all that was what you just said, basically. All that said. He knew that. He had warned them. In fact, after they went into the land, before Joshua died, he gathered them, and they'd fallen into all this idolatry worship. After they'd gone into the land and stuff, basically they they took some of the worship things that the other groups were in there doing that were against God, and they kind of incorporated them into their own worship. And, you know, God God gathered them all at Shechem, and and we all know what the the famous statement that, that Joshua makes here. He says, if you want to go and worship other gods, that is fine. But for me and my household, we will what? Serve the Lord. You know, we, we, how many of you have a plaque of that in your house somewhere, you know? I mean, there, yeah, several hands going up here, you know? I mean, that's such a famous statement, and it's so true. It rings true today. God got so fed up with Israel not following him that in 722 B.C., God allowed the Assyrians to come down and take the northern kingdom, take them into captivity. The southern kingdom did a little better for a little while, but about 150 years later, the Babylonians, which had uh, you know, conquered the Assyrians, came down and conquered southern Israel at that point. Now, you would think that God was going to do away with the Jews at that point. He would do it right then. But he doesn't. In Ezekiel 36, it says, I will increase the number of my people or of people and animals living uh, on you, and they will be fruitful and become numerous. I will settle people on you as in the past and make you prosper more than before. Then you will know that I am the Lord. He basically says, you are going back. You're going to go back to the promised land. You're in captivity. You're going to go back, and I'm going to bless you even more. Verse 22, it says, Therefore, say to the Israelites, this is what the sovereign Lord says. It is not for your sake, people of Israel, that I'm going to do these things, but for the sake of my holy name. Many of you uh, have profaned among the nations what, where you have gone. We need to understand God's reputation is on the line with our actions. And his reputation of his faithfulness is on the line of him keeping his word. For them, it's not about Israel. He knew that the Israelites would fail. He knew the Jews would fail. This was about him and him keeping his word as God. And he is going to show them his faithfulness even when they fell. It goes on in verse 23. I will show the, show the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, the name you have profaned among them. Then the nations will know that I am uh, the Lord, declares the sovereign Lord, when when I am proved holy through you before their eyes. 
For I will take you out of the nations. I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into uh, your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you, will be, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all the idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit on you. I will remove from, your, your, from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful and keep my laws. Basically, he's talking about the millennial kingdom here. Uh, but even before that happens, before the return of Christ, he's already started gathering them up. When did that start? May 14th, 1948. Israel became a nation again at that point. He started gathering them into the land. Verse 32, it says, I want you to, to know that I am not doing this, for the, uh, doing this for your sake, declares the sovereign Lord, but be ashamed and disgraced for your conduct, people of Israel. This is what the sovereign Lord says. On the, day I will, uh, on the day I cleanse you from all your sins, I will resettle you in towns and the ruins will be rebuilt. The desolate land will be cultivated instead of lying desolate in the sight of all who pass through it. They will say the land that was laid waste has become like a garden of Eden. The cities were lying in ruins, desolate and destroyed, and are now fortified and inhabited. Then the nations around you, will, around you that remain will know that I, the Lord, have rebuilt what was destroyed and have replanted what was desolate. I, the Lord, have spoken, and I will do it interesting the land of israel was basically a wasteland for the longest time the the, the turks in modern age have, have possessed it for for many many years and they they literally taxed people by how many trees they had on their property well if you didn't want to be taxed what did you do you got a saw out and you cut those trees down right so i mean the israel literally was desolate no trees anywhere and all this kind of stuff so when israel came and and, and uh, you know took it back what did they have to start doing replanting everything from scratch the delta had been backed up and and the salt water had come in and backed up onto the plains and stuff so they had to clear a lot of that out just to get back down to good ground and stuff and what's interesting is did you know the israelites the land that they have right now did you know that they bought it? All except for what they won in either the 67 or 73 war. I forgot which one. They got the Golan Heights and some, some of the desert, a little extra land and stuff. But the rest of the land, they actually purchased it. Oh, but the Palestinians say they stole it. They didn't steal it. They paid money for it. They started this reforestation plan and they figured out how to manage the farmland and, and now it's a very fertile place. It's the third largest fruit producing nation in the world. And they export it all to, to European countries and different stuff. It's interesting if you go out to the farm show, you'll see a lot of Israelis out at the farm show with different booths and stuff. Why? Because people all over the world want to know, okay, how do you do the watering stuff? How do you do this? How do you do that? How do you preserve all this? Because Israel doesn't have a ton of water, yet they're so fertile, and they produce so many good things out of their country. God took them out of the land of Israel, and then he brought them back into the land. The church was never given the land, never taken from the land, and never brought back into the land like Israel. 
Therefore, replacement theology is not a biblical concept. You would have to twist the scriptures into believing that. The Jews even existing today really is a miracle. I mean, as many groups as tried to wipe them off the face of the earth. You know what I'm saying? They should be done for. They should be gone. Yet they're still there. And the Jews are back in the land. This right here proves that God exists and that his word is true. God still has plan for the Jews. And, and you know, we're in what, what's called the church age right now. And Israel uh, uh, faded and the church rose up. And once God is done with the church age and, and we go to be to, to heaven, his focus turns back onto the Jews. And he, he's preserved 144,000 of them that are going to go out like Paul and are going to testify to the gospel like Paul did. It will be an incredible time. Now, why do I keep harping on this subject? We've hit it a few times in Genesis, and you're just like, I'm tired of hearing about replacement theology. We get it. Why should we even care about Israel? Because if the everlasting covenant with Israel is not an everlasting covenant, then how do we trust anything God ever has told to us? How can we trust that God uh, will do the things that he said he was going to do? Everlasting means what? Everlasting. So when he gives us an everlasting life, if we believe in, in him and follow him, that means we have everlasting life. See, the survival of the Jewish people is a testimony of an existing God. Yeah, there's a story of Queen Victoria said to her prime minister show me one thing that proves to uh you know proves the bible is absolutely true and god is real and his response to her was what the jews proves it right there they shouldn't be here they're hated by everybody they're surrounded by 80 million enemies that would love just to kill them all but god is watching over them and protecting them we as a church understand who the jews are and how God is involved in here. But guess what? The United Nations doesn't understand that. The Palestinians don't. The Islamic nations don't. Why do we think there's so much strife? Because the animosity toward their own relatives, the Jews. It's interesting. Ishmael produced all the Arabs. Isaac produced the Jews. They're related. And they're wanting to kill each other. Anybody relate to that? I'm just, okay, maybe not. Leave that alone, you know. God even told them that there would be strife when he told Hagar to name the child Ishmael. The promise that God had made to Abram, I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you, still stands, still stands today. Well, back to Genesis, it says in 17 verse 9, then God said to Abraham, as for you, you, keep, uh, you must keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you for the generations to come. This is my covenant with you and your descendants after you, the covenant you are to, uh, you are to keep. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You are to undergo circumcision, and it will be a sign of the covenant between me and you. Now, circumcision is not the covenant itself. It's a sign of the covenant. It represents a spiritual, uh, inward spiritual truth. It would remind them that they had made a covenant. 
kind of like a ring does with a marriage. It reminds us, I can take the ring off. Am I still married? What? I didn't realize that. No, of course I am. I can take it off or on. It doesn't matter. It's just, it's a symbol of it. Unfortunately, it became a ritual, and it became their salvation. It didn't matter how you acted. As long as the deed was done, they were saved in their view. Many years later, Paul would be preaching, and, and people would come uh, to know the Lord, and, and he would leave. You know, Gentiles and other people would come to know the Lord, and he would leave, and the Judaizers would show up. These are the one, you know, a lot of them were Pharisees and Sadducees, and they were rulers of the law, and, and, and uh, they would say, hey, if you really want to be saved, because you're really not saved because you haven't been circumcised, you've got to go through that first. You know, they're sitting there going, if you really knew the law, then you can't believe in Christ and receive salvation. See, Paul was not happy with this at all, and he takes in the task biblically in, in Romans 4. He basically says, Abraham became righteous before God even brought up the word circumcision, before that even happened. So don't give me the, you know, this bull that you're giving me here. So it's not about that. It's just an outward sign. Therefore, you can't put this on Gentile believers. We are saved by faith. Circumcision showed that the people were separated from the world. It's a symbol. It's not salvation. In Deuteronomy 30, it says, The Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants so that you may love him with all of your heart and with all your soul and live. It's about the heart. Jeremiah 4, by the time Israel was, was really deep in the, in the ways of, of Canaan and the way of the worship and so forth, and they were ju living just like the people were, you know, be like us living just like the world does uh, when they were supposed to drive these people out of the land. And he says, circumcise yourselves to the Lord, circumcise your hearts, you people of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, or my wrath will flare up and burn like fire because of evil you have done. Burn with, no, burn with no one to quench it. It's a symbol of cutting away the uncleanliness of the flesh. God is saying, but really what it's a cutting away is the uncleanness of the heart that Satan has corrupted. God is calling us to be separated from this world and our actions and our attitudes and everything else about us. See, they wanted to make it about salvation for the Gentiles, but we are saved by faith, just as like Abraham was called righteous because of his faith. In Galatians 6.15, it says, Neither circumcision or uncircumcision means anything. What counts is a new creation. Peace and mercy to all who follow this rule, to the Israel of God. Old things, this reminds me of the old things that passed away and all things become new. Another one's Colossians 2.11. In him, you were also circumcised with the circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self ruled by the, flesh, uh, by the flesh was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through the faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. It is a spiritual concept. And it goes on, the rest of this chapter, it goes on and talks about that whole circumcision idea. But this is what God wanted us, uh, you know, wanted us to do all the time. He wanted us to, to be cutting away from our lives certain things. Certain things that are unclean. 
We want the heart of holiness, not a heart from this world. We look at these things differently with God is in our life, right? I mean, on Sundays, you look at things a little differently than you do on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. See, God wants to envelop your whole life where, where Monday things look differently, Tuesday things look differently, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, okay, Friday, Friday well, I, now you're pushing it, Alan, because, I mean, Friday nights. And God's saying, I want you to look at that differently. Have fun, but look at it differently. Look at it through me. Look at it through my eyes. What, it, what you're doing is representing of me. Is that good or not? We should look at things differently. Baptism is the same way. You're dipped in water. It symbolizes the washing away of death and bringing you into new life. It's important to do, but it doesn't save us. It's important. Is your heart circumcised today? That's the question. It's interesting because circumcision is all about the male in the Bible, right? And God's sitting there going, oh, it's much broader than that. It's much broader than that. Is your heart cut toward God? Is the uncleanliness taken out? Are you working on that process? It's not a one-time done, boom, over and done with. God's saying this continually needs to happen as you mature and you get to different points in your life. I accepted Christ when I was a youngin'. I hit junior high and I had to really think, do I live the way I should be living if I'm calling myself a Christian? In high school, I had to reevaluate that. And luckily, I had a good youth pastor that kept pointing that out and pointing that out. When I got to college, man, freedom, right? I mean, I can tell you one t the one time I came home late, because, I mean, my parents said, you need to be home by a certain time. I was home by a certain time or they got a phone call, Okay. Because I knew what would happen if I didn't. One time I was late, my uncle came into town, and I walked in. My parents are, I think I've said this before, my parents were sitting there talking to my uncle, and my dad just goes, go to bed. And I'm walking, and he goes, dead man walking. I knew I was in trouble. I got to college. Man, I can come in at 1 o'clock, come in at 2 o'clock. It didn't matter. Not, I'm not saying I did all the time. I'm just saying I had all this freedom. I had to reevaluate is this what I wanted? When I started dating my wife, is this the type of woman that I want to be married to? And the answer was absolutely yes. Good thing. In your job, every step of your life, you have to reevaluate and say, is this what God wants me to do? Is my, is my mind on the Lord or not? Because when we start relaxing, guess what happens? You know, my wife and I, we went and sailed on the, uh, the Lady Washington. Uh, took Brandon to go, uh, you know, from Pirates of the Caribbean, you know, one of the big ships, the sail ships and all that, went down to Monterey, and we heard it was coming in. We thought, cool, that'd be a once-in-a-lifetime type of opportunity for, you know, to, it'd be a lot of fun. So we went and did that. Well, on the way back, we were going to take a different way, and then my wife and I start talking. We're just relaxed. We're just talking away, and I'm like, oh, was I supposed to turn there? My wife goes, yep. I'm like, will you stop talking to me? Because, yeah, of course, it's always somebody else's fault, you know. But, but that's the whole point. When we start relaxing in our life, we're just driving along, not paying attention. Guess what? We miss our exit. We miss the, the direction that God wants us to go. So reevaluate your life. That's what's important here. 